research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down. Well, it's been a pretty remarkable year. It's been a year of wealth destruction and wealth creation. We had the COVID-19 shutdowns, massive government spending, massive money printing by the Federal Reserve. The stock market crashed, and then the stock market boomed. That's the larger economy. That's what you and I all had to deal with. But the question is, what about the elite Washington insider economy? How did our elected officials and bureaucrats, how did they do? Uh, do the rules that apply to us apply to them? We're going to talk about that today. I'm joined, as always, uh, by Eric Eggers. Uh, Eric, how's the economy uh, been treating you the last year? Well, according to my wife, it's highly decadent and luxurious because of our <laughs> Disney Plus subscription and the Hulu subscription. You know, she's like, one of these days I say, can we, can we go to dinner? And she's like, yeah, get rid of one of your subscriptions, you know. But listen, <laughs> daddy's got to watch international soccer. So. Yeah, they're, they said they're going to they're gonna raise those fees, by the way. So inflation's going to hit you real hard. That's 100% true. ESPN Plus subscription's going up $2. And that's the thing, you sign up for these things and you don't even notice it, right? So I guess clearly I'm just like the Washington elite. I'm just out of touch with the baseline economy. <laughs> yeah, somehow I don't think Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell are worrying about their Disney Plus uh, subscription. But, but Eric, how is the Washington elite in general doing? I mean, we all know how we're doing. People in the service economy have struggled. Small uh, mom and pop shops have struggled while the big box stores are doing well. But what about the Washington elite? How are they actually doing? Yeah, they are killing it, as the kids say, <laughs> right? <laughs> they, uh, that Washington economy just hits hard. Uh, so, I mean, it's interesting because you and I have discussed and talked about for a long time, and I think this is something you, you've you touched on because you worked in and lived in Washington, D.C. in the 80s, right? I did, yeah. And you would say that Washington, D.C. in the 80s was just like a typical old normal place. Like, it, it, it kind of was. I mean, it was like it was uh, above middle class bureaucrats mm -hmm. dominated it uh, in the 80s when I went to undergraduate college there. And then as time has come along, it has morphed. I mean, we had lobbyists in the 1980s. There's a lot more now. There are a lot more government consultants. A lot of corporations have now located their headquarters there. And a lot of the people that have gone into politics are a lot wealthier than they were when they first got there. And it is true. Washington, D.C. is an incredibly wealthy town. It's a center for uh, wealth accumulation. We did a TV special, actually, on the Sean Hannity show a few years ago. We called it Boomtown. It was about how Washington, D.C., was so incredibly wealthy and different than the rest of the country. I mean, people at the time, and I think it might be six out of 10 now, but at the time, seven of the 10 wealthiest counties in America surround Washington, D.C. And by the way, my favorite clip uh, from that um, Boomtown special was you actually went and interviewed uh, a guy who worked at Ferrari of Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said business was great, but Ferrari headquarters was complaining. Why was Ferrari headquarters complaining if in Washington, D.C. they were selling so many cars? Yeah, because uh, in Washington, D.C., they said they had too many cash buyers. So <laughs> Ferrari corporate was complaining that they weren't financing enough. Washington, D.C. is America. 
America's new boom town. We traditionally think of the nation's capital as a town of museums and monuments, but increasingly Washington DC is a town of luxurious living. This is a town now where you can buy Italian sports cars, Ferrari, Lamborghini, Maserati. We are destination and the location borders two wealthiest counties in the United States of America. So it's Loudoun and Fairfax County. So we have a lot of customers in this area who can afford our cars and we don't need to advertise. When we get a complaint from the factory, complaint is you have too many cash buyers. <laughs> because usually it's the other way around, you know, some people are trying to reach, you know, their income so they can qualify to buy a product. In our case, they can very comfortably afford it and pay cash. Yeah, people were financing them on South Beach. Yep. They were financing them in Beverly Hills. But in D.C., it was a cash transaction. I just feel bad for the guy that's currently listening to this podcast in his financed Ferrari, thinking what an <laughs> idiot he is. You know, he's like, I thought I was killing it. I'm in South Beach driving a Ferrari, but I financed it. I'm clearly a failure. But the point is, yeah, Washington, D.C. has been uh, this this mecca for uh, wealth and because they take our tax dollars and they kind of get concentrated there. So some fun stats just about how Washington, D.C. is doing, and specifically members of Congress relative to the rest of the country. The median family income for the United States in 2020 was $78,000, right? Pretty good, right? $78,000. Yeah. It's up 4% from what it was in 2019. Um, in fact, there's 7% of Americans make over $200,000 a year, yeah. and uh, 16% of people make up between 100 and 150,000, right? So, okay, like one sixth of the country's making more than $100,000 a year. Well, obviously, the salary for a member of Congress is $174,000. So, that's a better than average salary. But it doesn't start there. More than half of members of Congress are actual millionaires, right? The, the median income or the median net worth for members of Congress is over a million dollars. And that happened just a few years ago. It's the first time that ever happened and it continues to be the case. So that's how wealthy uh, members of Congress were. The collective net worth of the 115th Congress, which was 2018 data, the latest data that we have, collective net worth, $2.4 billion. And that's a 20% increase from the previous Congress. So the point is members of Congress only continue to get wealthier, which, hey, like, I'm not one to knock personal success. Right. I mean, I'm not driving a finance Ferrari. I'm fine, bro. You know, but um, I think the point would be it's kind of only problematic if you think of, well, Congress is so wealthy and maybe they're getting wealthy and being right. wealthy because they're playing by different rules and just like not the same experience as average mem members of the country. And that and that's, like I think, the key point. I don't think anybody here thinks, I certainly don't think, members of Congress are getting rich off their salary. I mean, $174,000 is a lot. But let's remember, they generally have to live in Washington, D.C. and back in their home district. Um, and, and uh, you know, they have family that needs to move around. I'm not minimizing it, but that's not – they're getting wealthy because a lot of them are stock investors. They seem to do really well. They are land investors, and they use these mechanisms of government where they have power, where they have access to information to enrich themselves. That's, I think, the part that people get angry about. 
Do you get angry? I don't get angry if, if some guy in Silicon Valley comes up with some new, uh, you know, tech idea that makes him wealthy or a guy on Wall Street makes an investment. Those things you don't worry about because you want to believe that there's some kind of a level playing field. You want to reward genius. The question is, are you really rewarding genius in Washington, D.C., or are you re- rewarding insider access and power? And that's what I think what's, is going on in Washington. Well, I think that's why it was problematic and people were so upset when Nancy Pelosi went to the salon, right? I mean, yeah. okay, she's going to salon, a lot of people getting their hair done, but it's the idea of people making rules for other people and then not following them. It just speaks to like living a different type of existence. Like Nancy Pelosi has a net worth of $114 million. Yeah. That puts her seventh in Congress. Yeah. Uh, Mark Warner is a senator from Virginia, had a net worth of over $200 million. And fun fact, the previous, like this is just a Republican, Greg Gianfort, he's now the governor of Montana. He was number two with 189, but just kind of a crazy thing speaking to like the things you're invested in. Greg Gianfort, it was reported a few years ago, is actually invested in like U.S. sanctioned uh, <laughs> Russian <laughs> EFTs. <laughs> like, like, how is that OK? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> pretty, pretty, uh, pretty quirky investment scheme there uh, and raises all kinds of questions. Yeah. And that's really, you know, the the root of it is what are these guys actually doing with their money? And we're going to talk about that today. Some of the things they employ and we're going to propose, I think, or at least have a conversation about how we can actually try to fix this. Now, Nancy Pelosi is a fascinating figure. She's very polarizing politically. But let's not talk about her political stances. Let's talk about her investment approach, the investment approach that that she and her husband take. Uh, Ten years ago or so, I did a a segment uh, with 60 Minutes where we talked about uh, insider trading on the stock market by members of Congress. Initial public stock offerings, the opportunity to buy a new stock at insider prices just as it goes on the market. They can be incredibly lucrative and hard to get. If you were a senator, Steve, and I gave you $10,000 cash, one or both of us is probably going to go to jail. But if I'm a corporate executive and you're a senator and I give you IPO shares in stock and over the course of one day that stock nets you $100,000, that's completely legal. And former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her husband have participated in at least eight IPOs. One of those came in 2008 from Visa, just as a troublesome piece of legislation that would have hurt credit card companies began making its way through the House. Undisturbed by a potential conflict of interest, the Pelosi's purchased 5,000 shares of Visa at the initial price of $44. Two days later, it was trading at 64. The credit card legislation never made it to the floor of the House. I wanted to ask you why you and your husband back in March of 2008 um, accepted and participated in a very large IPO deal from Visa. At a time there was major uh, legislation affecting their credit card companies making its way through the the House. And did you consider that to be a conflict of interest? I I don't know what your point is of your question. Is there some point that you want to make with that? Well, I, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think it's all right for uh, a speaker uh, to accept uh, a very preferential and favorable uh, stock deal? Well, we did. You participated in the IPO. Well, I have many And at the time you were Speaker of the House. You don't think it was a conflict of interest or had the appearance no, of a conflict not, of interest? No, it only has the appearance if you decide that you're going to have a, a, a elaborate on a false premise. But it, it, it's not true, and that's that. I don't understand uh, we, what part's yeah. not true. Yes, sir. Um, that I, that I would you. act upon an investment. 
if you are a member of Congress and you sit on the defense uh, committee, you are free to trade defense stock as much as you want to. If you're on the Senate Banking Committee, you can trade bank stock uh, as much as you want. And that regularly goes on uh, in, in all these committees. What a flex, by the way. This is a casual <laughs> reference to my 60-minute uh, segment. Yeah, I'm gonna, I wrote I'm gonna, a best-selling book that was based on that. I'm going to brush off my high school debate trophies here shortly and, and refer to those as well. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, you know, one of the things we investigated was how the Pelosi's became fabulously wealthy because they got access to all these IPO shares of stock, initial pi- public offerings. So when Visa, the credit card company, went public, they actually got 5,000 shares of pre-IPO uh, stock. Uh, they made $100,000 in a single day when that stock went public. And there were multiple examples of them getting IPO shares of stock that are really usually reserved for insiders with the company or uh, big people on Wall Street. But flash forward, there's a more recent development uh, involving uh, her husband, Paul Pelosi, and some pretty serious leveraged stakes that they took. Uh, explain to the audience what that is. Dude, I'm a humble peasant when it comes to the investment world. So I was actually going to I mean, I can give you the dates uh, and the stats, but I think it'll be good for you to explain why it's so problematic, right? Because his, so Paul Pelosi on July 2nd is exercising 40 call options to gain 4,000 shares in Alphabet, which is the parent company for Google, right? At a stock price of $1,200. So, um, and then because of those options that he purchased, he gained $4.8 million from the trade, according to Bloomberg. And here's what's crazy is according to, you know, I think what people don't know, and not to add to your insatiable ego, but that segment that you did on 60 Minutes led to the passage of something called the Stock Act, which is the Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act. And it was meant to add at least an element of disclosure and ideally curb some of the trades of members of Congress who have access to inside information. Um, and so what's insane is, is that you know Paul Pelosi's buying these options in Alphabet. He's also buying options on Amazon, tr- kind of surrounding this new contract that they're going to get with the Defense Department. And Bloomberg came out with a piece and said, no, everything he did is totally legal because of the Stock Act. Yeah. And that's the problem, of course. They get to write their own rules. So, of course, they're going to make things legal that would be questionable for everybody else. But the details are important here. Uh, The Pelosi's bought options in several tech companies uh, that were on the cusp of uh, having breakout news that involved government actions. Now, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House at the time. That's what's so problematic. But back in May, uh, her husband bought call options worth between half a million and a million dollars uh, on Apple uh, stock. And so what does that mean, call Uh, options? So what that means is you're, you're making a bet uh, that the price, uh, depending on 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 you know whether you're uh, which option you're doing, you're either betting that it's going to go long or mm-hmm. it's going to go short. Whether the stock is actually going to go up, and you're doing a leveraged buy, which means if you're putting in half a million to a million dollars, depending on the option that you've taken, you could stand to make five million dollars off that trade, depending mm-hmm. if you make the right bet. But it's a very risk investment move. Most financial advisors would tell the average person, even the average very smart person, you. You don't want to do options because if you bet wrong, you're going to get hammered. Right. But the Pelosi's did a series of these. Um, and what's so troubling is they came on the cusp uh, of some very, very interesting actions. So take Amazon, for example. Now, Amazon and Microsoft, the other big tech titan, have been fighting over 
a Pentagon contract called Jedi. I love how they use these Star Wars references for these Pentagon contracts. But Jedi is going to be this massive sort of uh, cloud-based um, data set that the military is going to use uh, to organize our military capabilities. It's a massive, massive contract. Um, and Microsoft, with some controversy, won that contract. Well, what happened is... Amazon almost immediately said, wait a minute, we think there was a problem with the bid process. We think it was discriminatory against us. So they actually uh, filed a court case charging that that was the case. Why is that interesting? Well, the Pelosi's made some very, very interesting bets on Amazon that Amazon was going to go up. They made those bets shortly before it was announced that the contract with Microsoft was going to be rescinded, meaning Amazon is back in the game. Amazon stock price, of course, shot up on the news, and the Pelosi's ended up doing very, very well. I mean, the specifics are important, but I'd say like big picture, it's not a good look if the husband of the Speaker of the House is essentially making like roulette style bets on the stock market. Yeah. And then winning consistently. It's not unbiased, right? It seems like, I mean, you don't want to accuse anybody of having inside information, but it it would be easy to draw that conclusion. Yeah. And let me let me sort of throw this out there as part of the conversation, because the defense that Nancy Pelosi gives Republicans and Democrats alike have used this defense when this issue has come up is Nancy Pelosi will say with a straight face. In fact, they said it in this case. Those are investment decisions made by my husband. <laughs> they don't involve me. Now, you know, let's let's assume that 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 your lovely wife and you definitely married up. Uh, if you guys are making a, a financial decision and it's something that either you or her have some knowledge of, you wouldn't go out and just make some big leveraged bet without consulting her, would you? I certainly would admit not a podcast that anybody <laughs> could listen to, right? No, I think it, it is interesting, too, the idea that, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, look, first female Speaker of the House, right? right. A symbol for female empowerment right. in many respects. Right. But, right. oh, but no, my husband handles the books. <laughs> I'm just over here in the kitchen, you know, making right. stuff happen. Right. And this is, but this is the sort of remarkable song and dance that so many people on Capitol Hill do, which is they will say, well, that's my husband's or my wife's stock account. It's not my account. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, hello, these people file joint stock returns. These people live in the same house. The reason that Nancy Pelosi's husband's stock trades are required to be disclosed is because all the ethical laws say we treat you and your husband as one entity because you're married. And so this is an absurd defense. And hopefully people see through it. I think a lot of people do. But the media kind of reports this uh, uncritically that we're somehow supposed to accept the fact that Nancy Pelosi, who is Speaker of the House, gets briefed into intelligence reports involving the Pentagon, would know about pending action, somehow is oblivious to all of this. And her husband, Paul, is quietly, hermetically sealed across the country, not having any single conversation with her about this. Would you have a problem with him investing in the stock just in a more traditional sense? Or is it the idea of the leveraged, the having the option, making a heightened bet based on like future speculation that you, th- you find to be more problematic? Or do you think generally speaking, the idea that members of Congress or their spouse can invest in specific stocks is problematic. Well, I think leveraged plays like this um, are are absolutely the worst mm-hmm. uh, because they're highly leveraged. It's high risk, high reward. And if you can eliminate or minimize the risk part because you know something that's going to happen, there's a high reward on the back end. And and 
there was a case that uh, we highlighted on on this very subject uh, in 2008 um, during the financial crisis. There was a Republican, the ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee, went in in September of 2008. Remember, the financial crisis is just about to hit and gets a private briefing from Hank Paulson, who is the Treasury Secretary and the Chairman of the Federal Reserve. The meeting is so private, according to Paulson in his memoir, that all the senior leadership of Congress are supposed to put their cell phones in a basket. And the briefing, according according to Paulson, is, you know, the apocalypse is here. Maybe not the zombies, but the apocalypse is here. And they were predicting the market's going to go down 50%. It might go down 75%. Well, Spencer Baucus, lo and behold, ranking Republican on the High Financial Services Committee, who's in that meeting, what does he do? The next day, he takes out a leveraged buy of something called Ultra Short QQQ, which is a leveraged bet, (laughs) a double leveraged bet that the price of the of the overall market is going to drop dramatically. In other words, he knew it was coming. Yeah. He had been told by the Federal Reserve chairman, he had been told by the Treasury Secretary, and he did it and 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 he did very very well. That kind of thing to me is unacceptable. They shouldn't be trading options. I would even go a step further and we can talk in greater detail about this. I'd go a step further and say members of Congress should not be trading individual shares of stock. Because think about it, Eric. I mean, if you're sitting on the Senate Armed Services Committee and you're deciding whether, you know, Boeing or General Dynamics is going to get some contract or you're going to vote on approving a project and a member of the Senate or their staff members can trade in that stock and they do. In what law of the universe would anybody else in America be allowed to do that? I think as long as I keep my cell phone in the basket, it should be fine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because <laughs> yeah i mean it 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 is uh it is to me a terrible idea to let members of congress uh, right. trade individual stock and so uh, you, so the, but you would say hey if you want to buy into an index fund if you want to go into an eft something yeah. like that but the active buying selling i mean even the less leveraged i'm going to purchase this stock on this day and sell it on this day which is what some of the members of congress were accused of during the covid briefings right and there were some insider trading allegations there, it, it's just a bad look, whether it's actual insider trading or not. It doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that you're making decisions for the people you represent as opposed to your portfolio. That's right. And, and let's remember, uh, our elected officials um, are generally, there are exceptions, generally not dumb enough to put in writing, hey, <laughs> I just had this great briefing, go and buy this <laughs> stock. They're not that dumb, but you have a situation. You mentioned COVID. You got Senator Richard Burr from North Carolina back in uh, February um, of 2020 when uh, COVID is just beginning. He gets a briefing uh, that the global pandemic was coming and it was going to be bad. And what does he do? Does he alert his constituents? Well, you know, maybe he did. But he also sold 33 stocks between 600000 and $1.7 million dollars. If he had not made those trades, his portfolio would have been down by 30% within weeks. But he avoided that. And when asked about it, uh, he said that, well, you know, no, that there's, there's no connection <laughs> between this briefing I got behind closed doors on the health pandemic and my stock transactions. To me, that is absolutely absurd and unacceptable. And the problem is to prove insider trading is a legal fact. 
you have to have somebody who's dumb enough to send a text message, oh my God, share all my holdings, uh, because something bad is about to happen. It's one of the great existential questions of our age, right? When faced with terrible news, should your first call be to your family, the <laughs> health department, or to your stockbroker, right? Or yeah. to your broker. That's yeah. exactly right. Absolutely. Uh, I don't, my broker, I'm not successful enough for my broker to take my call. That's, <laughs> he's like, oh, that guy, <laughs> that's cute. He wants an update. <laughs> well, you know, you know, we, we focused here on, on stocks and, and that's a big part of the problem, but they've also recently resurrected another form uh, of self-enrichment um, that went away. They actually got rid of something called earmarks. Do you remember earmarks, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. It's basically where they say, hey, we're going to spend this amount of money on this specific project in my district or this person's district. Right. You you, you get to insert something yep. into legislation that's very specific and be specific to a project, to a company, uh, to a geolocation, anything you want. They got rid of earmarks. Well, earmarks are back. They say it's going to help government run better. Here's the problem with earmarks is they have been used in the past uh, for very lucrative land deals. Um, Senator Harry Reid of Nevada was famous for this. He would buy land and then he would uh, insert earmarks to extend a highway or a road or build a bridge, thereby enhancing the property value. Uh, Congressman Denny Hastert, the former Republican Speaker of the House, uh, did the same thing. He bought a piece of land in the middle of Illinois that he got an earmark to put money for a, a prairie parkway that just happened to run by the property that he had purchased a year or so earlier. So earmarks are back, and this is going to represent a new era for self-enrichment. Uh, a return to the glory days of self-enrichment, <laughs> it sounds like, right? Yeah, so that's another way of, I mean, so it's not just insider trading, which, I mean, it's, it is funny, right? Because even on the Stock Act, which they passed, um, I mean, Peter Schweitzer and The Daily Show are, aren't often uh, found together, but The Daily Show did a segment on another sort of aspect, just like earmarks are back, they found a way to kind of create another mechanism to find a pathway for personal enrichment. The Stock Act, to the extent that it stopped the ability to do that, then so they passed it. I mean, I think it's a cool story that you should tell. The Stock Act was a thing that existed right before your book and before the 60 Minutes segment in which you highlighted the insider trading that members of Congress were doing. Would it have two co-sponsors? Yeah, it had two co-sponsors at the time. Louise Slaughter, a Democrat from New York, had introduced the legislation. I forget who the co-sponsor was. The book comes out. Uh, 60 Minutes does their segment. They suddenly go overnight from two co-sponsors to over 300. It's a great idea now. <laughs> it's a great idea suddenly. And the reason, by the way, is people generally, whether you are conservative, middle of the road, progressive, hate hate the idea that the political class in Washington is self-enriching. And, and so it's a universal issue. So they saw the handwriting on the wall. But as so many things happen in Washington, Eric, they passed the bill. Uh, it was a voice vote in both cases. Um, Barack Obama had a, a nice session in the Rose Garden where he signed the legislation in front of everybody. And then about a year later, when people stopped paying attention, when people stopped they paying stopped attention, caring. Yep. They, they gutted the bill. Literally in the middle of the night, right? In the middle of the night. They they had a voice uh, vote in the House and in the Senate. They didn't say who voted. Uh, you had, um, you know, John Boehner, and, uh, who was leading the House at the time, a Republican, and a Democrat, Harry Reid. So bipartisanship was alive in America at that time. Uh, and Barack Obama signed it in the dead of night, basically gutting the bill. And that's the reason why... These issues, you have to stay on top of them because the political class in D.C., 
Republican, Democrat will always want to try to find ways to get away with stuff. And they will do that in the dark of night under the assumption that people aren't paying attention. So then solutions you would propose, and you already spoke quite passionately about one of them would be, you think you should ban options trading period. You think you should ban the ability for individual members of Congress and possibly their spouses to buy and sell individual stocks. Absolutely. It should apply to their spouses. um, And you should also get rid of earmarks. This idea of earmarks, we know what's going to happen. You're going to have these real estate deals done. And by the way, I'd also say, you know, our our, uh, director of research here, our vice president for research at GAI, um, actually also proposed a real basic, simple solution that when I first heard this, I was sort of appalled that we're at this point Mm -hmm. in America. He said... Why don't we just make financial disclosures of our elected officials um, in a file that you can download rather than just a PDF? Right, because what happens is, I mean, part of the way we do our analysis of the stock trades that members of Congress are doing is you have to go on different websites and click on each individual member of Congress and pull up different forms and look on the PDF and like look under these boxes and look what's listed there. So there's no automated way to collect the information. No, that's right. And, 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 you know, look. Do we think that's by design? Right, right. Yeah, I think it's by design. In other words, they want to make it as difficult as possible for voters, watchdogs like us, people in the media to actually be able to collate and access the information on what these people are doing. Yeah, if it's not a great look for buying and selling stocks surrounding like global market shaping events, it's also not a great look when you make finding that information out as difficult as possible. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and that to me is the surest sign that something is afoot. The fact that they don't want to make it accessible, they want to make it difficult to find means, you know, if somebody's trying to hide something, right. it means they're trying to hide something. Well, they can't hide it from us. They can't hide it from Peter Schweitzer. You know, he'll get another bill that'll be gutted. And, you know, that's that's your career trajectory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us on the drill down. Uh, We appreciate um, the audience. And if you are interested in the podcast, you can go to the drill down dot com and you can find us on most podcast platforms. You are on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify. It's your we're all over the place. We are. We are as prevalent as Nancy Pelosi stock trades. Yeah, and we'll have to look into that Disney Plus uh, subscription that uh, that you're in. I'm 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 heartbroken that it's such a burden for you. Thank you. 